All right, everyone, back with another really special episode of Empire. I'm taking this one solo. Santi is traveling today. We've got Hexanaut and we've got Monet Supply in the room. Welcome, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, let's jump into just like the elephant in the room. I want to jump straight into things. Uh, last week, we saw the U.S. Treasury add tornado cash to the OFAC list, USDC freezing related tokens, Infura, Alchemy, uh, GitHub, DeFi front ends, and other providers began to censor the addresses. Now, crypto Twitter got in this big debate uh, about like lower level validator censorship. Uh, Sam, I want to maybe start with you to kick this off. Like, what are your takeaways uh, specifically about like how this relates to maker and obviously there was a big conversation around die and should die be you know a lot of the over 50 percent of the collateral comes from usdc which can be censored uh like what is your takeaway from this whole situation now that you know maybe you've had a, a couple days to reflect on this yeah sure um so it's been definitely a new development um so and we're kind of in a different situation now a little bit but I, I kind of am the view that this is sort of the first phase of this where uh, the U.S., in my view, has kind of overstepped here um, by just blanket banning like a smart contract, a permissionless smart contract on Ethereum. Uh, I think it was an overstep and sort of the next step seems to be happening where there's sort of legal pushback on this. It, like it reminds me a lot of sort of the uh, the crypto wars in the 90s, right, where they were trying to outlaw um, privacy, uh, like encryption and stuff like that for individuals. And it was, uh, ultimately sort of, uh, like, I don't know who exactly, maybe the EFF, I think they were around back then, but whoever was like fighting back against it. And ultimately they got these, uh, these like overreaching rules, uh, reversed. Um, so I think we're going to see how this plays out. I think it's way too early to know like how, how this ends. Um, ultimately like, Maybe I'm a bit too much of an optimist, but ultimately this could be providing much needed regulatory clarity for the space, which which could be a good thing in the long run. Yeah. Monet, what do you think? Does this change how you just assess risk in general at Maker and, and maybe even more specifically like the high concentration of USDC within DAI? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was somewhat of a wake up call because I think the assumption was all, you know always that there would be some sort of due process involved in like uh, government actions that end up, you know, freezing USDC on chain, particularly in like pooled, um, pooled like smart contracts, like the, you know, makers peg stability modules. Um, and yeah, those kind of showed that that's not necessarily the case. So I think that it puts like a more, more emphasis on being able to, being able to survive essentially until we can get that legal review process started and try and roll back some of the, you know, kind of government oversteps from OFAC or from other places. Yeah. How, I mean, how big of a threat do you really think this is? There's a lot of, there's a lot of panic when this comes out, obviously, but how Monet, how big of a threat do you really think this is to, to something like die? Uh, in the immediate term, I don't think it's a big threat. Um, I think that it's, indicative of maybe greater challenges over time where um, like slowly, you know, kind of the government is going to be hemming in options for what DeFi can and can't do. So um, I think it's like kind of the opening shot. It's, it's not like an immediate threat, but it's pointing towards kind of a bigger battle that we have to come. 
Yeah. I feel like there are two, I, I feel like there are two battles going on in parallel here. One is related to uh, sanctioning assets, like something like a USDC that has gone through something that they don't like, which is a tornado cash. Then there's another side of this, which is uh, sanctioning uh, platforms that they don't like, for example, uh, DeFi front ends, maybe that they don't like. And, and obviously the important part of this is making sure that the, the, the protocol behind the scenes remains open and permissionless. Um, Sam, are you guys like, how do you think getting away from die and USDC for a second? How do you think about just like building front ends that can actually last or excuse me, building, building proto- a protocol that actually lasts where we know the, the government might be coming after, uh, the front end over time. Yeah. So I, I definitely believe in sort of having the core protocol be open and permissionless uh, as much as possible. Um, so wherever there's sort of uh, weaknesses, um, centralization, we need to kind of uh, work on that as much as we can to improve that. Um, in, in terms of DeFi front ends, I actually, I, you know, I, I don't want them to be blocking people, but I ultimately I think it, it's up to them. Even the official ones, these are mm. more in the realm of uh, legal private companies, and I think it's more important to have uh, a bunch of uh, competition on the edges for providing the best user experience. But as long as the uh, core protocol remains permissionless and open, and sort of in a worst case scenario, you can just directly interact with the smart contracts. I think that's okay in my view. And one of you guys, I don't know who should take this, Sam or Monet, can you just explain what the PSM is, like why it was implemented? This was such a, a, a big innovation, I would say. I think it was uh, last year in 2021. Like why is, what, what is the PSM? Why was it such a big in, uh, innovation? And then from there, we can start talking about some of the, the future collateral models. Sure, um, I, I can run over it. Uh, so basically, uh, let's go through a little bit of a time travel to back when uh, DAI was launched. So multi-collateral DAI was launched in November 2019. And basically, uh, we had a situation where DAI was consistently trading under a dollar. And that was something we could deal with uh, fairly easily, uh, even with ETH as the only collateral at that time, uh, because we can just raise uh, stability fees or raise the uh, instability fees would basically encourage people to uh, buy die on the market, raise the price and repay their loans. Um, and, or we could raise what's called the die savings rate, which is to encourage more people to hold die again, uh, which would increase the price. So that was, that was a pretty well-known uh, sort of uh, situation. And it, it lasted right up until uh, March uh, 12th, I think it was uh, 2020, also known as Black Thursday. Um, when the price of ETH crashed uh, about about half in in one day, um, so in that situation, people were panic repaying, and people were fleeing to safety. So this sort of increased the price of Dai above one dollar. And really, what we had is this excess demand, um, and we had no tools at the time to really uh, put it anywhere. So the peg broke up to about a one. Dollar ten cents, um, and I think about a month later we introduced uh, USDC as a new collateral type to kind of uh, store this uh, excess demand, give people an option to basically short the peg back down. Um, so this lasted up until the December 2020. We had USDC on as regular vaults; you could use it just like uh, ETH. Um, but there was sort of the realization uh, it makes a lot more sense to sort of have uh, the protocol own this. USDC and basically just use it as an 
arbitrage mechanism to uh, keep the peg uh, at $1 uh, or less. So basically, the, the, the PSM works in such that if DAI is trading uh, over a dollar, let's say it's trading at $1.01, um, anybody can take $100 of USDC and then use that in the PSM to mint 100 DAI, which is worth $101 and then convert that back into USDC to close the loop, and that, that is uh, profitable arbitrage. Um, the same thing happens reverse on the way down when the peg breaks low and there's available USDC in the PSM. Uh, there's an arbitrage opportunity in the opposite direction. So uh, basically, as, as long as there's sort of capacity in the PSM or uh, uh, USDC in the PSM, we can hold uh, the die peg at a hard $1.00. Two years later, I mean, you guys now have what three and a half billion dollars worth of USDC, some, somewhere around that. Is this um, uh, is the the P, is the PSM how how some Monet? Maybe I'll throw this to you. How similar do you think the PSM is to um like Curve stable swap offering um and like Curve's three pool? Does that there? I've seen analogies. I've seen Hasu talk about this a little bit. How much of an analogy is uh, is there to draw there, or parallels would there be to draw there? I think um. I think a lot of other decentralized stable coins have kind of used curve pools as like their own version of the PSM. They just, they externalize it a little bit. So they have users, you know, own those, those LP tokens. Um, and usually they're paying them to, to, you know, put their capital into those LPs to provide liquidity. Um, but I think it ends up being a really similar uh, mechanism where it, it provides um, a lot of liquidity selling your stable coin if it's above the peg and then buying it if it's below. Um, so yeah, I think it ends up being a similar stabilization mechanism, but it's, um, you know, it's external to the protocol. So um, there's an argument that maybe there's somewhat less like censorship risk or, or regulatory risk from governments freezing it. Um, and the other thing is that it's, um, it kind of like, uh, it doesn't hold the peg as hard as the PSM. It, it allows the price to deviate a little bit um, depending on like the supply and demand of these stable coins. So um, yeah, I think it ends up serving a similar purpose for most stable coins as, as you know, the PSM does for maker, but it's um, yeah, it just has a couple like differences there of, of externalizing it um, having less of a hard peg, but then also being much more costly for these protocols that are using curve as their, their source of liquidity. Yeah. All right. So let's kind of draw the timeline out here and get it, get into what, uh, what I want, what I really want to dig into in this conversation, which is the uh, collateral basket and, and get your guys' take on this. So end of uh, 2019, you guys introduced multi-collateral die March of 2020. Uh, obviously the black Thursday price of ETH falls like 50% in a day die pushed up to like a buck 12 that day, bad for the protocol. Uh, a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, you guys introduced, I think it was actually like a couple of days later, introduced USDC. Um, uh, you guys introduced USDC 2021. You guys introduced the PSM. Fast forward to today, you've got like three and a half billion dollars worth of USDC in the PSM. Uh, a couple months ago, it started becoming really, really clear. And I know this has been worked on for more than just a couple of months, but became really, really clear that you guys were making this big push into real, uh, real world assets, RWAs, right? Uh, Monet, can you t maybe kick us off here and then Sam, I'll throw it to you. Like what, what kicked off this, this urge, uh, and this desire to get into real world assets? Was it a lack of collateral? 
Uh, was it a lack of crypto collateral, uh, which would maybe cap the the scale of of Dai, or what? What was the reason for for real world assets? Yeah, I think um, you know over time after after Black Thursday, and we we faced this huge excess of demand for holding stable coins compared to like demand for you know levering up on on Ether and other crypto native collateral assets. Um, I think initially people thought this was just like a temporary sort of market movement. Um, but over time, it became pretty clear that this was just like an intractable kind of state of affairs of the crypto space. More people want to hold stable coins and there's just more demand for stable assets versus, um, you know, leverage long in ETH on margin. Um, so we, we kind of knew that we were never going to be able to meet the demand for DAI just purely through people levering on ETH or even on like wrapped Bitcoin or, or other, you know, staking derivatives or other assets. Um, and then the sort of the situation was we have all this USDC. Um, it's not, it's not very risky, but on the other hand, we're earning no yield on it. So it's not contributing to our income whatsoever. It's not really compensating for the, you know, the small amount of risk that it does have. Um, and, it just kind of provides a much better, you know, risk adjusted return and, and risk compensation if we can deploy these assets, uh, all this, you know, billions and billions in the PSM into productive uses. So um, stuff like we've got, you know, asset originators that are funding real estate uh, investments and, uh, you know, various other real world assets, they, they actually do provide a yield to maker, which is more than enough to compensate for risk and also, you know, pay for the protocols overheads. Um, and it, it just, you know, basically is just kind of a better deal for maker to deploy these productively. To do this though, if you start bringing on more and more real world assets, eventually you push further and further on the risk spectrum. No. So, and then that gets into why you have to build the buffer as I understand it. What do you mean by the, uh, the risk, like what, what kind of risk? Um, riskiness of the lender, uh, just, I mean, just the, basically, yeah, the risk profile of, of whoever you're giving loans to, uh, the, the riskier the lender, the, the higher the def, the default rate is going to be, the higher the default rate, uh, might be meaning means the higher the buffer that you'll need. Am I think, thinking about that in the right way? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, usually, uh, what we're striving for is more, uh, senior positions, uh, mm -hmm. And usually like over collateralized, like you could do over collateralized lending in the real world as well. So um, getting these sort of safer positions with lower yields is our more of our goal, less about sort of uh, under collateralized lending and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And what is the ideal basket of collateral for DAI? And I'm curious if you guys agree on this or, or disagree. Monet, maybe start with you and then go over to Sam. Yeah, um, I would love to see more. Um more ether collateral, more you know liquid staking, uh, more Bitcoin, uh, more of those kind of core large cap crypto assets. Um, but I think what we've seen in the past is you can't like draw blood from a stone in a certain sense. Like we can try and lower the the interest rates we're charging and loosen risk parameters, but there's just a limit on how much demand there is for people to lever up uh, against those assets. So. We need to find the right balance with those. We can't we can't force the market to borrow from us against crypto. Um, so I think ideally, I'd love to see you know fifty percent or more in like really um, 
censorship resistant collateral assets, but I don't think it's realistic except for maybe in bull markets. Um, so maybe, you know, somewhere between like a quarter to half in just large cap cryptos. Um, a little bit, I think, of PSM backing. So, you know, the stable coins that Maker is holding in reserves, I think is a big benefit because it makes DAI very liquid and people can be really confident that DAI is going to maintain that that $1 value. So I, I think that, you know, 10 to even 20% uh, PSM backing in the long term is acceptable and, and maybe even good. Um, and then beyond that, I think there's opportunity in um, what we call D3M. So it's uh, direct deposit modules where we can inject liquidity into other protocols. People might not want to borrow, you know, on Maker, but they might be willing to borrow on Aave or Compound. So we right. can supply die into those markets and provide the market with liquidity where it wants it. Um, and then beyond that, I think real world assets will be kind of how we fill the gap. Um, I'm sort of most most in favor of, uh, at least while, while uh, yields are high, with just kind of sticking with like treasuries and, and short-term assets, really low risk, really easy to assess. Um, in the long run, I think Maker will be able to kind of run the full gamut of stuff, but it's it's really difficult to uh, assess the risk and manage the risk of like private credit investments. So, um, yeah, there's there's been some interesting proposals of like uh, real world assets that are funding you know big projects like solar farms, various stuff like this, but they are difficult to really manage the risk and, and assess if it's a good deal. Yeah. Sam, what do you think? Agree? Disagree? Yeah, that was spot on pretty much. My, yeah. uh, my collateral portfolio as well. Uh, nice. Uh, do you, so then do you guys think that real world assets are a short term solution? Let's, so let's say, okay, what's the total, what's the total market cap of crypto today? Some, somewhere around a, roughly a trillion or 1.5 trillion. I don't know the exact number today, but ballpark around a trillion. Let's say crypto, the total market for crypto grows to, um, uh, let, let's call it 20 trillion, right? The Does that mean that the, would you still need real world assets as collateral there? And maybe a, a different way to phrase that is like, are real world assets just this kind of like band-aid solution uh, for collateral that we need until while we wait for crypto to grow to the size that we think crypto will eventually get to? Um, I, I don't think so, I, but okay. I, I'm hopeful they kind of morph into something that's more on chain first. So right now we're kind of having to, you, like makers sort of on the forefront, we're having to push out into the real world and get these deals done. I'd like to see more like tokenized real world assets. I mean, the, the first one was, it, people don't think of it as a real world asset, but all these uh, US dollar coins are real world assets, right? They're just tokenized mm. off chain uh, positions and like cash and stuff like that. So I would like to see more of this uh, with sort of like maybe the next one is sort of tokenized uh, positions in corporate bonds, government bonds, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, if there can be some sort of independent provider that puts this on chain and does redemption, all that kind of stuff, uh, and then just has these uh, secondary markets form on chain, this is sort of uh, ideal candidates for collateral for maker. And it may feel less like sort of the real world assets that we've been doing so far and uh, just just a much nicer way to go about it. So I'm still hopeful these this is sort of coming in the hopefully near future. Yeah. 
Do real world assets, uh, what's the advantage that real world assets have over something like USDC, right? Ever, a lot of people are saying move away from USDC because of these sanctions. Are real world assets not similarly sanctionable? Yeah, um, I think like playing as if we're like having to avoid these sort of overreaching <laughs> sanctions, I just think is a non-starter. I think we just need yeah. to push back on this and, you know, Worst case scenario, we'll have to deal with it, right? But I, I, I still am optimistic we can kind of work out something that's more reasonable, and uh, you know, not have to plan everything as if we have extremely hostile actors uh, from the largest government in the world. Uh, so, if we have to fight the U.S. government, like I think this space will just be completely decimated, and we, it's not as interesting as it could be. Monet, what do you think? Yeah, I think I would agree that. You want to be decentralized and resilient, but um, I think, you know, we we don't necessarily need to, like, plan for, like, a government takeover <laughs> apocalypse. Um, I think that uh, one of the best things we can do is, like, try and really build um, public support for decentralized money. And, um, yeah, it's a much, much more realistic way to, like, try and address these, like, sort of governance risks instead of just saying, okay, we're going to, you know, sell all of the USDC into ETH or, you know, some other far-fetched idea like that. Yeah. One, one of the things I was thinking about, I told you guys, I'm, uh, or I told, I was talking to Sam before this about uh, ramping up to become a recognized delegate within Maker. I was trying to think of some of the maybe concerns I might have with real world asset strategy. Something that came to mind was um, when you lend to real world assets, like a bank, right? They're, they're probably going to dump the the borrowed die for for U.S. dollars. The the PSM can support this right now, but as you start ramping that strategy up, I'm I'm assuming there's a scalability there. I'm assuming that that is capped. Is there is that a fair concern, or that just means I don't understand it well enough, or 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 this is a concern, but there's a solution? Monet, what do you what do you think about that? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a fair concern. Um, we have you know so much PSM reserves right now, uh, so many stablecoin reserves that. I don't think it's a very immediate concern. Like um, if we're able to scale up real world assets enough that we actually start running into that issue, that would be a good problem to have. Um, the solutions um, at that point, I think it's, um, you know, we can kind of lean back onto our previous peg management mechanisms of turning on the die savings rate, you know, creating mm. more demand to bring people into die to help, you know, kind of balance that supply and demand if we can get that that much real world asset adoption. Um, and I think it's, uh, it is it is kind of a new new type of risk to manage though. Like to date, all of our, all of our um, assets, uh, so to speak, like vaults and such, um, they all basically have no duration. We can change the interest rate on those whenever we want, or we can, you know, kind of incentivize people to repay those whenever. Um, and with real world assets, that's, that's no longer the case. You know, you have specific agreements, generally the rates will be fixed or quasi fixed. Um, so I think it just requires an extra layer of kind of like portfolio management and risk management to make sure you're not overextending on really long duration assets, unless you're sure that you can kind of balance that against your liabilities correctly. Die savings rate, just to make sure I fully understand it. The die savings rate is the the variable rate of accrual that you earn by locking it uh, into like into the DSR contract. The goal was to 
allow maker governance to influence demand for dye through changes in monetary policy, if I understand it correctly. And it's right now at like set at like 10 or 15 bips. One bip. Uh, yes. Uh, one. Okay. One bip. It's the uh, token amount right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sam, you agree with the, the concern around real world assets dumping for us dollars. Good problem to have. We can figure that out if we, we get to that scale. Oh, definitely. Um, you can look at it as sort of a flywheel effect right now. We have, uh, like, uh, I don't know, five, seven times as much demand for dye as we can fill on the supply side. So that's why we have this huge excess of, uh, stable coin backing. If we can replace that with more, uh, useful assets, uh, as soon as we start filling a good chunk of that, we can then forward uh, these earnings on to die holders and start boosting the demand up again, where we get more uh, stable coins coming in. We can transfer those to more productive assets and it just cycles and it's sort of a positive uh, feedback loop. Hmm. Do you guys think that um, like when you go into new markets like this, you're, you, you guys are basically going to need to uh, the, the more the more asset, the more physical assets that get tokenized, the better. Uh, maker will end up doing because you'll be able to pull those tokenized assets probably into um, in into maker as collateral for for die. As you guys think about you're, you're, what you're basically doing is you're creating a new market. Do you think that it's on you to, or do you guys have some sort of strategy to help tokenize assets? Uh, this has been a narrative. I remember in 2017, it was like security tokens, and we're going to tokenize all this real estate. And here we are five years later, and it really hasn't happened. So. Do you think that that's almost on you uh, or do you think it would benefit Maker and benefit DAI to, to maybe form a core unit to help tokenize some of these real world assets? Yeah. So Maker's sort of been, I think, one of the protocols that is kind of pushing for this and it's definitely uncharted territory. So there's lots yeah. of stumbling blocks that we have to go over. Um, I, I think a lot of the issues right now is just uh, bridging the smart contract world with the legal world. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but there's, I think, a lot of people working on this, especially now with interest rates rising. Uh, there is yeah. a lot more um, sort of demand for these types of products. So seeing well, these like uh, DAOs sign legal agreements with off-chain entities, you're saying is not <laughs> too easy. <of> a thing. <laughs> no, it's like, uh, you know, we've have been kind of experimenting with, uh, with a few things on this regard. Uh, there's definitely a number of legal structures that we're exploring. Um, but the idea is that like, you know, once we get this once and it's scalable, we can just sort of uh, ratchet this up, whatever the solution is. Um, and ideally, it sort of provides a lot of safeguards uh, to the protocol. So we're still kind of in the experimentation phase, but there's starting to be uh, like things developing. For example, like we are extending loans, at, like as of right now, extending loans out to uh, Huntington Valley Bank, uh, as well as uh, Societe Generale. These are loans going out to uh, real world banks and there are legal agreements behind them and all that kind of stuff. So there, yeah. there's lots of experimentation going on. The, the, so the Huntington Valley bank was an interesting one. So you've got that hundred million dollar die debt facility. Are you, do you lend to Huntington Valley bank or are you lending? Does that pass through Huntington Valley bank? It goes to Huntington Valley banks customers. What does that deal look like? Yeah. So the Huntington Valley bank, um, and I think Societe Generale is, yeah, they, they act yeah. sort of as an intermediary to the end borrower, which uh, they'll just, do their normal bank thing and issue loans out to whoever that is, right? And those um, loans are so, in U.S. dollars. Uh, the end loans, I am, the, I'm not familiar. Loan, yeah. What, okay. yeah, yeah, I have no idea. So you're lending a hundred. You could lend up to a hundred million dollars in die to HVB, and then they would probably convert the die into USD. 
for the for yes. the loans to their end consumers. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so this is sort of the thing about replacing uh, the PSM. A lot of people say we're just lending out the USDC and the PSM, but there's sort of just a two-step process to this. They'll mint the die, and then they'll convert it through the PSM, and then there's because there's uh, it's easier to redeem large quantities uh, through USDC versus uh, die, so they can get out to US dollars pretty much at one to one. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Um, Sam, you, I think, did you propose the, um, real, real, uh, real world assets and like onboarding new assets in general ties back to the system surplus, like the risk buffer. Uh, I, did you put together that proposal back in what March or April earlier this year? Was that uh, you? yeah. Are you talking about the aggressive growth strategy? I think so. uh, there was a proposal talking about how maker should raise its system surplus by a factor of like five X or more via a debt or an equity issuance. Meaning, I think it was like a three hundred or three hundred and fifty million dollar surplus goal. The surplus was back then, like let's call it sixty million, sixty five million. Now it's at like maybe eighty million, roughly. Was was that you? I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd love to hear more about just like what is Maker's system surplus? Like, how is it funded? What is it? What is it for? And like, where is it now? And where should it be? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that was me who put out that okay. original proposal uh, back in March. I think it was. So uh, first, just a little primer, I guess, on the system surplus uh, or the surplus buffer. Um, basically, uh, this is sort of uh, excess cash that we have around that we can, it, it's there in case of a shortfall event with any of the collateral. Um, so let's say uh, ETH price drops really rapidly, so much so that we cannot liquidate before uh certain people's uh, positions become uh, under-collateralized. Um, if we liquidate and it, the final position is under-collateralized, then there will be some uh, sort of uh, debt, bad debt there that we need to uh, recapitalize uh, with the system's total sort of uh, cash float so uh, that the, the system as a whole remains uh, solvent. So this is an automated process, and uh, this, that that is sort of the main reason for the system surplus. Now, lately, it's also being used to uh, pay uh, operational expenses um, ever since the foundation dissolved. Um, and we are entirely operating as a DAO. We have to uh, fund, there's expenses to building and you know maintaining the protocol and all that. Uh, so we have to uh, fund expenses from somewhere and that somewhere is uh, the surplus buffer. Mm-hmm. And how we've, uh, f- have we filled that so far? It's been entirely uh, filled by uh, uh, revenue. There has been no um, sort of uh, cap raise uh, directly inserted to that. It's just sort of been the protocol running uh, for uh, how long has it been? Three years, almost three years now. Um, just the accrued uh, interest has been just piling in there, and that's uh, how we how we've built it so far. Um, yeah, Monet, do you think there should be a cap raise? Um, I'm definitely uh, receptive to wanting a higher surplus, and I I think Sam kind of mentioned this as like the the reasoning behind the proposal but if we have more capital then we can afford to take a little bit more risks um like right now i think um and historically we've been really really focused on not losing money on those liquidations and on you know deal you know, like debt going bad um so we might have liquidation ratios for some of our crypto collateral vaults higher than we could um, just because we want to be sure that we're not going to end up losing money and putting die holders at risk. Um, so if we can, you know, raise a lot more capital and have a much bigger surplus, we can take a little bit more risk 
we might be able to get a little bit more demand for for borrowing out of the market and help shift that that collateral balance a little bit farther away from stable coins and back towards crypto assets. Um, similar logic applies for real world assets as well, where you know if we have more capital, we can um, you know we can be more confident in deploying assets into into real world assets without being afraid that we're risking, you know, die holders money. Um, I think it's, um, it seems like it's, you know, politically a little bit touchy within the Dow though, because, um, first of all, no one likes to get diluted. Um, you know, it's people, you know, with crypto in particular, people have like a meme about dumping and it's tough to like convince people that this is an investment in growth and kind of what the benefit is. Um, and also, there's, you know, sort of a, a somewhat delicate balance of power uh, for for voters. So, um, if you, you know, increase the supply of MKR, um, you know, who ends up buying that, and where do they align on different sort of like decisions that the DAO needs to make? Um, so, I think mm-hmm. people are, um, yeah, they're just they, you know, they're unsure of how that would all work out. So it's. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces to like how you raise the capital and what it's used for. Yeah. I want to talk more about the, maybe a couple of misalignments maybe that in, in inside of maker, but save that for, for the end talking about governance stuff. Um, so just to make sure I understand it, Sam, uh, and, and this buffer, cause I want to really make sure I understand before we move on right now, the buffer is like 1% of outstanding die or 2% r- roughly mental math, like one to 3% of outstanding supply. Is, is in the risk buffer right now. If you look at traditional banks, they would never have a 2% risk buffer. They'd probably have a 10 to 15 to 20% risk buffer. If you guys increase the risk buffer, you can invest in more real world assets. You can deploy maker on other, maybe like less, not less secure chains, but maybe like push a little farther out on the risk spectrum within crypto. You can lend to, to probably different market makers. You can lower the collateralization ratios. You can that 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 that's the thesis as I understand it for increasing the risk buffer. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, what's your when, when you guys think about? I want to talk about the the D three model. When you when you think about Maker, the last couple of years, Maker's been like almost very B two C, right? People go to Maker, they they deposit, they get die. Um, it feels like where Maker's going is moving from like B two C to B two B or more like DAO to DAO, uh, as is popularly talked about. So you've got the the D three, right? The direct deposit die module, uh, and can, I mean, can you just tell like why this is beneficial for Maker and how someone like who's an example of this, maybe Ave, is utilizing the D three today, D three M. Yeah, the uh, the only D3M that's deployed right now is the Aave one, uh, but we will be releasing the Compound one soon as well. Um, definitely, I don't think we should be abandoning uh, retail users. I, I think uh, the issue right now is that uh, Ethereum gas price, at least until recently, have been like really high. So <clears throat> we've just like lost a lot of the retail, and and more our uh, customers were like larger like C- DeFi type uh, exchanges like. Nexo and Celsius and uh, all them. Uh, so we we do want to get uh, retail back, and so our, this is why we're our one of our highest priorities right now is getting uh, Maker deployed on uh, L twos and other chains, such that uh, the gas prices will be much cheaper. People can kind of mess around and get you know dip their feet into DeFi 
and use Maker uh, directly again. So we're de there's definitely, I don't think anybody wants to abandon, but the observation with the D3Ms in general is that it's, it's just a much more scalable uh, model than sort of having Maker try and do everything itself. Uh, it's much better to have these other protocols such as Aave, Compound, and you know, there's other like RWA ones like Maple and TruFi, Centrifuge, uh, et cetera, that sort of are highly focused and specialized on what they do best. And it's much better to just look at Maker like exactly what it is. And it's basically, to me, it is the DAI stablecoin and a credit facility. So switching to just being a more high level wholesale creditor to these other protocols, I think will just scale much better. Yeah. I mean, as an outsider looking in, it feels like don't reinvent the wheel here, right? You, there are a lot of folks who need cheap credit. Um, you need folks who are maybe have a more direct relationship with retail or have more expertise deal like assessing individual loans. Maker should stay very, very competitive on providing the, the lowest rates and, and innovating on like credit wholesale on the credit wholesale market instead of like trying to assess these individual loans, both, both inside of like both crypto native loans, but also on the real world asset side of things. That, I mean, that's an outsider looking in, but. I agree. And I think, um, our experience too, like we, we have a really a decent amount of adoption with like large cap cryptos, ETH, um, stake ETH, uh, wrap Bitcoin. Um, but haven't really seen the same with like small caps or mid caps, um, stuff like DeFi tokens, governance tokens. Um, and it seems like people who are using those assets on collateral uh, really do tend to prefer somewhere like Aave or Compound, um, where they can, you know, they can use cross margin. They can actually earn a return on their collateral from people borrowing it. Um, so yeah, I think for certain certain types of assets, uh, it's really a good fit for you know working with these these sort of liquidity protocols like Compound and Aave rather than trying to go it alone. Yeah, interesting. So the so the D three. Uh, D3M. You guys pick some complex names for these things. You guys got to... Uh, I think Stanny picked that name, actually. I'm like, why Why? Yeah. Why is it a direct deposit dime? D3M. Uh, yeah. So for, the way I understand it for Aave, uh, it's, been, it's, it's mutually ben, uh, beneficial, right? For Aave, um, the D3M, as I understand it, generates and deposits this like freshly minted die to the Aave, to Aave's die lending market. For Aave, this is good because it kind of stabilizes the borrow rate um, in, in their lending markets. And then for Maker, you get to distribute DAI liquidity to different protocols, uh, or just right now Aave, but soon sounds like Compound and then coming more like to different protocols and chains and L2s. It's a source of income because you get this collection of like, what is what is the DAI on Aave? AA DAI interest. Um, you get like it just becomes you, you increase DAI's attractiveness essentially for De DeFi borrowers on secondary markets because uh, there's like lower borrow rates. So it's, it feels like a win-win uh, for both parties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah. really our goal is to just improve the experience for people using DAI. It's not to be the best at everything. So yeah, this is definitely a situation where it's a win-win in my view. If I was running a business that had that where it was really, really obvious that the business was going B2B, and a lot of the revenue and a lot of the traction and growth was coming from the B2B business. And then I had this like existing B2C business and it took up a lot of time and like dealing with the community. And I'm not even talking crypto. I'm not talking maker right now, like and dealing with B2C. Uh, I would probably think about cutting the B2C business. Um, 
now is the like, why not do that? Yeah, I think um, it's because it's already developed. We can just, once we get on uh, these L2s and stuff, we can just deploy it for free. So, I mean, why yeah. not? And I, I don't, I don't think if it's sort of uh, just in general, we shouldn't be abandoning uh, end consumers, uh, but like, especially because it's not a huge <laughs> lift. I, I think we should still, you know, try and go after those markets. And because, yeah. you know, it, it, there's sort of a, a more intangible where like people are, when they get started with DeFi and all that stuff and they're just learning, sort of having a positive direct experience with Maker can kind of be invaluable in some ways that are hard to measure. Um, so having that available, uh, I think there's added benefit there. Monet, what do you think? Because you got to admit, there, there is an opportunity cost of dealing of dealing with the retail crowd. Yeah, there is for sure. Um, I, I'll echo what Sam said. Like my first uh, on-chain transaction was just testing out a Maker Vault. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, I didn't like need to borrow money for anything. It was just purely testing it out. But it was really cool and probably a big part of the reason why I ended up kind of landing at Maker. And that's still yeah. where I participate most. Um, I also think in a weird way, we're seeing a lot of DeFi credit protocols. They're, they're sort of converging back onto Maker's general framework of how lending works. Like if you look at Compound V3, um, each, each of the Compound V3 markets um, has only one borrowable asset, typically a stable coin. And all of the other assets are just strictly used as collateral to help like isolate risk and prevent um, sort of like a cascading collapse of the market. And when you think about it, that's, that's very similar to how Maker works. Um, you know, we have our vault, the collateral is not borrowable. So as a user, you can be 100% sure that your collateral is safe. Um, even if, you know, other, other borrowers don't manage their risk correctly. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, we actually kind of have a winning product in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think sticking with it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How did you guys fare during, I mean, Sam, you mentioned like some of the folks that you were lending to or, um, or, or giving die to or like Celsius and Nexo. How did you guys fare through, through the, I mean, the, the biggest, uh, the, the, the folks who got hurt the most, and this is in bear market where have been the lenders, uh, the BlockFi's and Celsius's and Nexo's and Genesis's of the world. How did you guys fare through this? Yeah, I mean, this is the beauty of uh, over-collateralized lending on chain. You can see everything and uh, it went flawlessly. Um, I think Celsius ended up uh, repaying their loan. It was mostly in Bitcoin, I believe. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah th that was the end of our business with them, right? Like no need to <laughs> discuss anything and they just went on their way. So it's kind of the beauty of uh, DeFi, right? Do you think you sh do you think that's the right model though? Should you never be losing money on liquidations? Like, shouldn't you, as a lender, occasionally? Doesn't that mean you haven't optimized your risk for the highest re re return and reward? Like, shouldn't you occasionally lose money on liquidations? I I would tend to say yes, and we're probably you know from the last year year and a half of history, we're probably like a little more conservative than we need to be. Um, the flip side though is you never know kind of it, it's really tough to know what the limit is and and when you're pushing it too far mm -hmm. and when it rains you know it pours in crypto like um we haven't seen a true test of the market like black thursday uh in the past two years so um yeah. i think we want to be sure that we're 
we're not going to, you know, blow up the protocol or cause die holders to lose money. And um, yeah, you know, I think we, we probably are more conservative than we need to be. Um, but the flip side is like, you never know when you're reaching for yield too much and then it bites you. Yeah. Sam, what do you think about that? Agree? Uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, I think we could probably push a little bit up the risk curve. I mean, this is part of why I was arguing for a larger surplus buffer, because I, I think we do need to have a, like, uh, you know, losses every now and then I think is, is more optimal. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, there's maybe an argument for why die is so popular because we're so conservative. People are holding die to a massive degree compared to what we can get uh, loans out for. So that may be because we're just, we have this brand of being so uh, safe and conservative and stuff. People can really trust holding die. Uh, Let's talk Aave for, for, I want to talk about this trend of everyone releasing their own stables. Uh, you're seeing all, uh, a bunch of, I feel like in CFI over the, the last couple of years, like everyone starts differently with a different uh, kind of niche product, like what you, whether you have a wallet or whether you're like a lend and borrow platform, like a BlockFi or Celsius or Nexo, or like you're an exchange, you ultimately converge on becoming a bank. And you're starting to see this for, I mean, a, a crypto bank, uh, you're, you're starting to see this kind of vertical integration across the DeFi stack. Now you see like Aave releasing their own stable coin. Frax is working on the specialized AMM uh, and like an ETH staking and derivative and lending product. Uni bought an NFT aggregator. Osmosis is adding a lending protocol to their chain. Um, I'm curious what you guys just think about this, this trend of um, maybe we could focus on protocol specific stable coins. Yeah, I can uh, hop in on this. I think, um, I think for Aave in particular, um, you know, they already focus on lending. Um, so it's actually not that big of a leap for them to also add their own stable coin to a lending market. Um, you know, the competencies involved in, in managing like a stable coin protocol and then one of those like pooled lending protocols, very similar. Um, so yeah, from a certain perspective, um, why not? You know, they literally, they just, you know, deploy a token and add it to, to Aave V3 and, you know, they're already kind of off to the races. Um, and then they also have like a captive um, sort of like audience or so, so they can, they can push these integrations out across various chains where they have Aave markets deployed. So um, they have like a little bit of a, a um, little bit of like a leg up in just like pushing integrations and trying to bootstrap uh, usage of their stable coin. Um, I think it's somewhat similar for Curve, who's also uh, expected to release a stable coin. Um, you know, they've they've been working on stable swaps from the jump, so they have a lot of experience in stable coins and how they work. Um, I think that most protocols, though, I mean, they might find that it's really tough to bootstrap um, demand. Um, you know, Maker has organically grown sort of use cases for Dai, demand for Dai. Uh, trust and die over a period of years and years. Um, and we also had the benefit of basically being first among the decentralized stable coins. So, you know, back in 2019, like if you wanted to hold a decentralized stable coin, we were it. Um, so yeah, I think that that'll be probably the biggest challenge for these, these projects is how do you figure out who actually wants to hold the stable coin? Um, is there a way to do that without just kind of having like, massive token incentives and dilution that's going to harm your own core protocol. 
Sam, what do you think? Valuable to DeFi for every protocol to launch a stable coin or everyone just fighting over a fixed pie of seniorage profits? Uh, I think it's just sort of a natural evolution. Um, like you can see, like I think a lot of these protocols, we're just all going to converge into like doing the same thing, essentially. You can see this with like Frax as well, as, which is now also doing real world assets and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're looking at some degree of sort of uh, under collateralized lending. Uh, not a huge amount, but like, you know, maybe on the on the edges. Um, so I, I think we're going to kind of converge into more of a, a similar model with a lot of these uh, protocols uh, and just just sort of like a natural forcing function, um, because like you're if you look at it as like a business, you're like, OK, what are my next steps? And so like yeah. the next thing uh, for Ave to do was to launch a stable coin. It makes perfect sense. Right. That's what I would do if I was them. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's sort of an inevitable, uh, development. And, uh, I think they'll, we'll see a bit more vertical integration, um, in the ecosystem. Yeah. All right. So the, let's extend that out then for maker, right? Sam of Frax has this, you mentioned Frax, they have this term, uh, he has this term that he called the Trinity, right? Where he basically says that, uh, every, every protocol ends up converging on building a, the, the core DeFi offering, which is an AMM, uh, a lending platform and a stable coin, right? If you look at maker, you've got the lending platform, you've got the stable coin, you don't have the AMM. So when, when AMM for maker? Uh, I don't know. You're putting me on the spot here. I, I, I don't have any plans personally, but you know, maybe somebody in the <laughs> DAO on, is Sam. cooking something up. <laughs> Come on, Sam. Monet, what do you think? Should maker have its own AMM? I actually don't think AMMs are a money making protocol. Like I, I don't think there's really a business there. Um, you know, yeah, maybe I, maybe not just AMM. Maybe it's I, but but it's like some sort of Dex liquidity. Like you've got the native the stable coin, then like a lender or like lev like leverage provider. Then you've got Dex liquidity provider. I guess you could say the PSM. Wasn't it a synthetic assets? Wasn't that the uh, last piece of the Trinity? Was that the last piece? Okay, I think so. I thought it was. I thought it was a way to basically swap tokens, like a, some sort of Dex and. Dex, then there's some sort of like lender or provider of leverage, then there's some sort of stable coin, but I could, I could be wrong here. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't think we've seen a Dex that's able to capture any value like on net, like haven't seen one that's, that's profitable when you consider, uh, token incentives that they're paying. Um, so yeah, in my view, the only, the only reason to like launch a decentralized exchange is just to make sure that uh, there's not going to be like an attempt at, you know, value capture or extraction that just forces you to like shift your integration somewhere else. I think this is kind of one of the, the beauties of DEXs so far is that they can totally uh, be um, non uh, like open permissionless, like non-controlled, that kind of stuff. Uh, like Uniswap, uh, maybe apart from the fee, um, is entirely their immutable permissionless and it doesn't need governance. Uh, so like, I, I think that's kind of the beauty of the deck space. Hmm. Could you guys ever do something like what Frax and Curve, like uh, almost like an alignment, like a la Frax Curve, where you al almost just align yourself with someone like a Uniswap or, or, or even a balancer? I think to some extent we, we kind of already do with Uniswap. We have, yeah. um, I think like almost like a billion and a half um, in capital that's deployed into Uniswap liquidity pools. Um, and there's, you know, kind of rough plans to do the same with Curve. And maybe with 
other DEX protocols over time. Um, that's kind of like one of the ways that we're able to um, deploy our, our huge stablecoin reserves into something that's you know somewhat productive. It can earn non-zero yield for the protocol, um, and then provides more like utility for Dai users. Um, so yeah, I I think that there's uh, definitely potential there in like trying to partner and like deploy assets into some of these DEX protocols. Yeah. I want to wrap it with a couple of questions on, on governance, actually. Um, can one of you guys take the, take the task of, of, of deciphering runes? What's he called? The, the master plan or whatever his God plan, whatever, whatever his, uh, his, his big thing is versus uh, the, the rune plan basically versus the Hasu plan. Uh, I would love for one of you guys to, to, to break down both of those plans. Who uh, wants to take it? <laughs> I, I can uh, I can take a shot, and then uh, yeah, yeah, you can correct me, Sam. But so I think the Hasu plan is um, sort of familiar because it's it basically it's um, creating like sort of a loose board of directors. Not really. Um, it's not like they don't have executive control over anything, but um, kind of like a. a group of people who are empowered to help set strategy and help uh, provide like more clear oversight and direction to the protocol and for the workforce. Um, so yeah, that I think Hasu's plan is, is fairly simple because it's already kind of familiar to um, structures that people use in, in organizations in the real world. Um, I think Rune's plan is um, it's got a lot of pieces and um yeah, it's, it's more complicated, but I think his focus is that he wants to create a system that's uh, like incentive compatible. So it it is um, like less reliant, you know, as much as possible on um, individual people having, you know, goodwill and like uh, remaining, you know, kind of upstanding and just trying to like break everything down into various incentive structures for government. Um, so there's, there's a lot of elements to it. I think, um, you know, he wants to engage voters more and help voters kind of self-organize so that they can serve as, as some of that direction and that oversight force that, that Hasu is kind of, um, sort of putting more under like a, a committee or like a board. Um, there's, you know, aspects of, uh, like how do you contain like costs and, and manage budgeting, um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of plans about like kind of spreading out into these other verticals, like, oh, maybe makers should have like a staking derivative and other sort of business lines. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's um, I don't know, I, I probably don't do it justice. And <laughs> I think people there, there's a summary of the end game plan on the maker forum, which is very helpful. Yeah. Um... I mean, so if I had to maybe try and take a stab at it too, it's like Hasu is basically, uh, Hasu is basically trying to introduce like this council, a lot of things that look like traditional uh, uh, companies and, and corporates, right? Like introduce basically a board of directors. You get people who are elected for some term when they have good pay, they have kind of job security for a bit. They set the strategic direction. They coordinate between other units, aka other teams. They have budgets. They get judged on performance. This sounds a lot like a company. Uh, and I think Hasu would probably say, look, it's been amazing what we've been able to do up to this point, what Maker's been able to do up to this point. But to really 10x and to get to the next level, we're going to have to uh, maybe... Uh, 
not not sacrifice decentralization. I wouldn't say that actually. I would say maybe just restructure a bit uh, and get a little more focused. Uh, whereas Rune takes a very like stay as decentral like decentralization maxi approach as possible. Um, I don't know if that's a good overview, but but Sam, where do you fall out? Uh, which which camp do you fall in? Too. Yeah, I've heard this sort of uh, dichotomy between their two proposals, um, and I, I think where it's like uh, Hasu's is like centralized corporate, and uh, Runes is more like uh, decentralization. And I don't think it's quite right, um, and mm. it mostly comes from that uh, Hasu's proposal with the uh, Council of Makers, which is the board of directors or whatever you want to call it. You know, everything has twenty names in crypto. Uh, <laughs> um, it, there's no sort of executive power. And I think, like, furthermore, uh, there's been ever since sort of the initial, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, confrontation uh, drama, um, these two have been, like, working together a bit. And there's, like, you know, there's a little bit more, uh, uh, I think, you know, combining ideas where they're right. For example, uh, Hasu proposed the Constitution and... uh, Rune seems on board with this idea too, the idea of building a constitution. That was sort of the other part of the proposal. Um, And I I think despite uh, what it appears in public, uh, these two are more aligned than it may seem, but there are definitely uh, key differences between them. And I think it's, uh, Monet got that pretty right, uh, which is just this point about having a single council versus Rune more wants a um, multiple councils kind of thing. Um, and I'll admit, I don't fully understand all the details of uh, the end game. I'm still kind of reading it over and, and learning it for myself. Uh, but yeah, the, the gist of it, I think Rune wants to kind of solve everything by empowering the maker holders as much as possible and uh, sort of uh, fixing everything else with uh, game theoretic incentives to uh, minimize sort of the, the human side of things and corruption, all that kind of stuff as much as possible. That's, that's yeah. my view of it. Where do you think the community falls? If you took a poll of the, I don't know, 50 people who work inside of Maker, where do you think the community falls? Uh, like, I, I just, I don't think this is the right question. Like, are you on the end game or are you on Hasu's plan? I, I see what you're saying. You're, you're saying the dichotomy that. That, that we're trying to create is not actually, it's not actually plan A and plan B. You're saying the end, the, the end game is the wrong way to put it. The, what will eventually happen will be some sort of middle ground between, between the two plans. Yeah. I, I'm hopeful because, I mean, I, I think... Uh, most people are in agreement that governance is a little bit dysfunctional right now, um, especially as we enter the bear market. Uh, it, it's harder to, it's easy to hire teams and stuff like that. And we are, everything's growing, everybody's happy. But, you know, when the bear hits, you got to make tough calls, like firing people, all that kind of stuff. So that's where it's sort of really been under strain, our initial design. But, you know, like we're like one of the first DAOs coming into existence. Like, of course, we're not going to get it right on the first time. So my hope is, some compromises reached and basically, you know, nobody's completely satisfied, but there's a way forward and people are satisfied enough and it sort of yeah. solves our problems. That's my hope. How has the Dow performed relative to being a company? If Maker was a company, do you think things would be better or, or worse? Depends on what you mean by better. I think things would be executed a lot faster. DAOs are incredibly inefficient at sort of uh, execution, but that's not what they're optimized for. They're that's optimized not the goal, yeah, for resilient, yeah. resiliency. Yeah. So, in that regard, uh, it seems to be working okay. But I mean, we haven't had strong sort of uh, threats yet. Um, so kind of building that out in anticipation is, I think, useful. What is the threat that you'd be optimizing to, to be resistant against? I, don't, I guess uh, like hostile nations. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess like we said at the beginning, like sort of we can't be a completely hostile US is probably like game over to a lot of DeFi um, and maybe even Ethereum as a whole at this stage. Um, but I think long term, when we, we become uh, like bigger, uh, we want to be resistant to this as much as we can. Uh, so, yeah, it would be like nation states, maybe not the US nation states would be useful. Um, yeah, stuff like that. On one side, you're you're trading off like efficiencies in governance, uh, slower growth, um, and 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 there are a bunch of like downsides I could list to being a DAO. On the the what you're getting in return is potential resistance against some uh, uh, nation states in the future. As you reflect on it today, like August 17, twenty two, does that does that trade off still feel worth it to you? Yeah, I mean. It's kind of like all this is why else are we kind of building this if we're not building it for resiliency against sort of like more like various threats and yeah. stuff like that. And it could be nation states. I kind of threw that out there, but there's all kinds of other things like governance capture, you know, totally. rent extraction, that kind of stuff. So I think it's important because these are more unknown unknowns about what's going to be in the future and what possible threats there could be to the protocol. We're building this for the uh, experience of the end user. And so uh, protecting them against all these threats to the best of our ability seems like it's like why we're here, right? Or else why are we building decentralized (laughs) finance? I think, yeah. I, I love I, I love seeing Maker. I, in my opinion, Maker's doing really, really well right now and has had a very, I know things seem probably crazy internally, but externally looking in, it seems like Maker's doing really well and has had a, a, an amazing last couple of months. Um, and just a lot of things are really ramping up. Again, this is an outside, I'm sure it's very messy internally over there, but uh, it, it, I love to see it because when, when things are going super well, like in the bull market, obviously Maker probably... It, you you maybe have FOMO working inside of Maker, and you're like, oh my god, all these other protocols are like growing so rapidly, and the price of everything else is 100xing. Oh my god! Uh, but what? But when shit really hits the fan, you can see who's you know who's who's standing on the other side. And right now, I feel like that's Maker's coming out first, so it's cool to see. Monet, um, uh, how said the tweet earlier today? Um, said Maker suffered a $400 million bank run after rumors that it could depeg from USD and yeet its USDC collateral into ETH. Emotion-based governance and DAO transparency are an explosive combo. $160 million withdrawn from the PSM. Do you think there's any... Is this just what happens? Do you think there's any way to... Is there any solution to this or this is just a byproduct of, of having full transparency? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really think there was ever even a plan or even like the the seed of a plan to like yeet all of our PSM like stable coins into ETH. Uh, I think Rune just like mentioned it as like a possible like a yeah. pre. It's like before even an idea uh, in the Discord. But yeah. yeah, we were fully transparent. Rune is you know he's a huge voter. He is the like founder of the project. He has a lot of um, a lot of influence in makers. So I think it kind of got blown out of all proportion. Um, and you know, that's, in my opinion, like this is proving like why die is super reliable and why you'd actually want to hold it is like, you know, people can move 400 million out of it in a day or in an hour or in a minute and nothing's going to budge. Like, you know, everything is, is basically working exactly as designed. Um, in a certain sense, for people who are afraid about 
regulatory risk or, or you know, collateral assets being frozen, um, this actually helps. Like, you know, all of those, those outflows are just drawing down stable coins and, and increasing the share of, of assets that are in core crypto collaterals. So, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's just kind of proving resilience and, you know, this, this problem is kind of solving itself. Um, I do think what it, what it does show on the other hand is that uh, people don't really understand how maker governance works. So there may have been people who actually believed that we were about to like put on three and a half billion dollars of ETH price risk. Um, so that's, that's maybe an area for improvement. Like we need to, to help people understand like how does governance work at maker? Um, you know, when do you actually need to start being concerned if you see some crazy <laughs> ideas that somebody writes in a discord or in the forum? Yeah. Well, it makes, it makes for a fun, uh, for an energy. I feel like everyone was, I was in the office when that was happening last week. I feel like everyone was glued into the discord. Like, holy shit, look at this. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the cool things about the DAO, right? This stuff I think happens in private companies all the time, but it's, it's all behind the scenes in yeah. the DAO. Like mostly everything is public. So every, like, it doesn't mean we're going to act on any of these ideas, uh, but it's just sort of like, Hey, maybe we should do this. And all of a sudden it like goes viral and you're like, okay. <laughs> I want to wrap it with just a question around vision uh, there. I've seen a couple things on uh, a couple folks discussing like, is, is, is the end goal to become a decentralized bank or is it to become a or like wholesale lender or is it to become a decentralized currency? I saw, uh, who was it? Derek, um, Maker's head of, I think, protocol engineering, Derek Flossman, said on Twitter that the protocol had to decide whether its purpose was to run a decentralized and de-risked credit facility or if the goal is to, to, to build an investment vehicle that maximizes profit. I want to get both your guys' takes as the, as the last question here. Um, Sam, what, what is the goal of Maker? I can't give you the goal of Maker because it's a DAO. I can give you my own uh, what is personal your, opinion. Yeah, what is your, yeah. <laughs> um, my personal view is I, I would prefer uh, DAI to be uh, like a well-regarded, uh, credibly neutral currency in the world as an alternative to all these uh, state uh, fiat uh, currencies. Um, that's my personal view of it. Um, but on the other side, you know, we need to have a, uh, revenues and stuff, if not for anything else, to sort of boost uh, DAI's status uh, by turning on uh, things like the DAI savings rate to help it grow and provide, uh, you know, uh, giving back to the holders of DAI to uh, boost it in the world. So I, I think we should be cognizant of, of the revenues and stuff like that. But I, m- me personally, yeah, it is it is about the currency still for me. Yeah. Monet, what do you think? I would tend to agree. I think, um, yeah, we, we want to offer the world, you know, a de-risk, decentralized, transparent, non-discriminatory money, um, like really be, you know, just base layer financial infrastructure for people who are being iced out of the financial system now. Um, historically, though, I think, you know, money has typically started from basically commercial banking and, Um, you know, stuff that looks a lot more like just like a private lending facility. And then as it scales and as it becomes more resilient and, and kind of ossifies, um, you know, it ends up becoming a central bank or becoming some sort of like core clearing facility 
so, um, you know, I think that we're, we're kind of developing in the short run as, you know, basically a decentralized commercial bank, if you will, or, or something similar like that. Um, but I do think, you know, the end goal is we want to develop into actual money. Um, and that, you know, I can't like say how that will, how that will look. You know, we may keep the U.S. dollar peg for the long run or, or maybe even forever. We may, you know, end up shifting off of it. Um, but, yeah, I think the vision is definitely much bigger than just, um, for me at least, it's much bigger than just, you know, being like, um, you know, Blackstone on the blockchain or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. This has been awesome, guys. Um, really appreciate both you guys coming on. Any last words you guys want to share before we wrap it up? Um, I would say, uh, if you're listening to this and, uh, you know, this excites you, I would say, uh, get involved in maker. Um, you know, we need all the help we can get, uh, get involved in the forums. Um, there's more and more people signing up for recognized delegates, uh, including the host here. Um, so yeah, I, I would say just, just get involved. It's, it's a lot of fun. Monet? Cosign. Yeah, no, I, I pretty much <laughs> like fell backwards into uh, maker and it's, yeah, been, uh, one of the best things to happen to me. <laughs> so yeah, if you're, if you're interested, there is, there's probably, uh, probably room for you to contribute. Amazing. All right. Thanks guys. Link, uh, we'll put a link to, uh, both of their Twitters, uh, right down in the show notes. We'll also add some, some more info on maker. Um, thanks again, guys. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.